As you open your Bible this morning, um, just um, relieve some anxiety from you. Uh, there's a reason there will be no slides upon the wall this morning. I want your eyes locked in on the scriptures this morning. And um, we are going to actually begin this morning in the Gospel of John. And then we'll end up in First John. So let's turn to the Gospel of John in verse 20. Both the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written by the same apostle, the one who is known as the Beloved One of the Lord Jesus. He, it seems from the Gospel accounts, had the closest relationship with the Lord Jesus during his time here on earth. And there's a repetition of a concept or a phrase here in John and 1st John that's really important for us. And one of my goals in preaching um, to you every week is to connect dots that maybe you haven't seen before. Remember as a kid playing connect the dots? Uh, I always loved doing that, connecting the dots and then seeing what was revealed. And I think that that's one of the things that we need help uh, from each other to do. We need to connect the dots. We need to um, understand how Scripture relates to other portions of Scripture because it's all one big revelation from God. Um, But also, we need help connecting dots in the sense of what Scriptures apply to our hearts and our needs at any given time uh, in our walk with the Lord. So let me connect a couple dots for you this morning at the end of John and then toward the end of 1 John. In John chapter 20, the Apostle John tells us specifically why the Holy Spirit led him to write this revelation, that the Holy Spirit inspired these words. It says in John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It would have been impossible for John or any of the other apostles to be able to record everything that the Son of God accomplished while he was here. But the Holy Spirit led John to write certain truths and events that took place in the life of Christ and record them in what is called the Gospel of John or the good news recorded by John. So he says there's there's many other things that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that aren't included in this book. But you need to understand why I have written what I have written. And these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John is the first original gospel tract. 
evangelistic tract. These are written, John says, his gospel is written to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one from God, and he is the Son of God, and that there is only one acceptable response to God in the flesh, and it is to believe in him, to entrust oneself to him, the creator who became our redeemer. Now turn to 1 John 5, and you see similar language used by the same man. 1 John 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John says, I wrote the gospel of John to you so that you would believe in Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God. And now I write this letter to you, believers, those who do believe, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you will know in the depths of your heart that you know Jesus. Look what he says. I write these things. To who does he write them? You who believe. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. And this word know means to know by experience. It's not merely intellectual acknowledgement of historical facts concerning Jesus Christ, though that is part of the gospel. The gospel is rooted in historical fact. But John is saying this is not mere book knowledge that I'm talking to you about, but this is life experience. This is what comes from having a relationship with God. You may remember a couple weeks ago, we thought just briefly for a moment what John recorded in John 17 when Jesus prayed to the Father and he defined eternal life. He said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you sent. Eternal life is really not so much about going to heaven when we die it is about knowing Christ, having a relationship with him, that then when we do die, that is the result. But it's a living relationship. That's what Jesus says to us. And so John is saying here, I write these things to you who believe that you already believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know by experience this is experiential knowledge. This is deep heart knowledge. To know in your heart and to know in your life experience that you know Jesus 
as Savior and Lord. This assurance is an inner peace and confidence that the Holy Spirit cultivates within us through God's Word. Did you catch the similarity between those two passages? John says, the end of the Gospel of John, these things were written, and now he says, I write these things. He's talking about Scripture. Actually, the word Scripture means writings. So John is referring here to God's Word. This inner peace, this confidence that that the Holy Spirit cultivates in our heart as we are growing in Christ comes through God's Word. In fact, you will not be growing in assurance of salvation if you are not in God's Word. If you are not abiding in his word, then you are not abiding in Christ and you will not be growing in confidence and peace concerning the state of your soul. So this confidence is not based on feelings or circumstances, but on the infallible promise of a faithful God who does not change. That's really important. If our assurance of salvation is based upon our feelings, well, then we might feel saved on Monday, but not on Tuesday. It's not based upon feelings. It's based upon the revelation of God. It's based upon the promises of God in his word, a God who cannot lie, will not lie to us. I write these things, John says, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So you must look to Scripture to grow in the confidence of your faith in Christ. God's Word must be your ultimate authority for faith and life. Our feelings will betray us. God's Word never will. Now, in these three verses we're going to look at this morning, John presents two results of building our faith on the foundation of Scripture. First, he says in verse 13, look to Scripture for assurance of salvation. Look to Scripture for assurance of salvation. I write these things to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance of our eternal salvation comes through the word. So look to scripture for assurance of salvation. And throughout this letter, John gives tests of genuine faith in Christ. These are ways that we can grow in assurance that we know Jesus in a saving way. We're not going to look at all of the tests this morning, but I do want to call your attention to a number of them because John says, this is why I wrote this. I wrote these things so that you would know. So let's go back and look at some of the things that he wrote so that we may know. Let's start in chapter 1. We'll just walk through five of the tests that he 
gives to us in his letter. The first is the test of conscience. The test of conscience and confession of sin. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the test of conscience and confession of sin has to do with how do we respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction when we sin? Are we like verse 10? It doesn't impact us. Sin does not bother our conscience. We're not convicted by it. In fact, we might even have the audacity to say, I'm not sinned. Other people are sinners, but not me. Because John says if we have that attitude, then we are making God a liar and his word is not in us. That's another way of saying, you better look in the mirror because you may be a pretender and not a possessor. But if when we sin, we are convicted, we grieve over that sin. Not with a worldly sorrow of 2 Corinthians 7.10, but a godly sorrow that then leads us to repentance. Do we want to turn away from that sin. So think about what is your attitude towards sin? Is your attitude towards sin different now than it was before you professed Christ? The test of conscience. Then there's a second test, chapter 2, the test of obedience. Some of this is review, I know, because we've been going through this letter for months, but we need to look at some of the things that John says he wrote to us so that we will know. Chapter 2, verse 3, And by this we know, there's that word again, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The test of obedience to God's word. So ask yourself, what is my relationship to God's word? Do I care what God's word has to say about my life? Is it my functional authority that I seek to apply Monday through Saturday, or do I just consider it on Sunday? What is my relationship to Scripture? Is my will wanting to obey? 
Do I want to submit to God's word? As the general pattern of my life, will we disobey God's word? Yes. We will sin. We will continue to sin, and that's why we had the test of the conscience and confession of sin. But what's the general pattern of your life? Is the general pattern of your life moving toward obedience to God's word? I'm not talking about perfection. We're talking about progression. Are you making progress toward greater levels of obedience to God's word? Because if we say we abide in him, verse 6, then we ought to be walking in the same way in which he walked. Then there's a third test later on in chapter 2. This is the test of affection, test of affection concerning the world system. In other words, no longer loving the world system, no longer connecting with the value system of this world more than the value system of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. That's a command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's this test of affection. Where is our affection? What's, what's our love relationship with the world system? Do we love the world system? John's not saying don't love the people of the world. He's saying don't love the system of the world that is governed by Satan that leaves God out. Instead, be pursuing the will of God in the word of God, not the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. And John says, to give yourself over to the love of the world is foolish because the world is passing away. Then there's a fourth test, chapter 3. We might call this the test of progressive sanctification. I just had to squeeze that in there. That means growing in holiness. That's all that means. Progressively becoming more like Christ. I know that the trend today in religion is to use the word progression for those who are truly enlightened people, so enlightened that they don't need the scriptures anymore. We are going to be progressive Christians. That's not what we're talking about. I think you knew that already, but I just want to make sure. We're talking about progressive sanctification, people who are faithful to God's word, growing in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, present tense, in the Greek, which means ongoing habitual pattern of life. 
Again, we've talked about this. This doesn't mean that we don't have sin struggles. What this is saying is that if a person knows the Lord, he will not continue to live in sin in an unrepentant manner. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So ask yourself, what is the desire of my heart? Is it to become holy? Is it to become like Christ? Do I want to overcome the sin in my life, or am I content to live in a state of sin in relationships that are sinful against God's word. And then there is the test of brotherly love. Keep going in chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we do that, John? Well, he tells us in the next verse, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So do you love to be with other Christians? Or do you find it much more pleasant and more to your liking to be with unbelievers? Now, we should love unbelievers, and we ought to have redemptive relationships in our life. There's something wrong if we don't have connections with unbelievers in our lives that are redemptive, that we are seeking to use for God's glory and the spread of the gospel. But who do you find your closest kinship with? Those who know the Lord or those who do not? So look to Scripture for assurance of salvation. That's what John is saying to us, and that's why he has given us all of this instruction Throughout this book, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Look to Scripture for assurance of salvation. That's that first result of building our faith on the foundation of God's Word. The second is look to Scripture for confidence in prayer. Look to Scripture for confidence in prayer. Look at verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Some Christians spend a good amount of their time trying to Discover the will of God as if it is some kind of a mystical thing that first must be discovered before you can then do anything for God. Well, let me say to you that God has already revealed his will to us in 66 books called the Bible. 
He's already revealed his will to us. And yes, there may be particulars in the way that he leads us providentially in our lives as his children, but it will never be contrary to his word. And so if you're wondering what the will of God is, then spend time in God's word and you will learn what the will of God is. And so if you want to pray according to the will of God, because John says if we do, then we are heard, then we should pray according to scripture. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we, we, our requests agree with that which we know is good and that God has described as being good. We don't pray about things that we already know God's word forbids. We don't say, well, I know God's word says this, the Bible says this, but yeah, yeah, I I prayed about it. I've counseled people who left their spouse because they prayed about it. And there were no biblical reasons to do so. And many other examples throughout the years of people who have claimed to know the will of God apart from Scripture. But John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let me tell you what has helped me over the years. It's not been that many years, but I've gotten into the habit of praying Scripture. Because sometimes I don't exactly know how to pray for myself or for people in my life. And and I know if I pray scripture, then I know I'm praying the will of God. So what that means then is I'll spend time thinking about a passage of scripture, meditating on it, learning it, and then letting that influence the way that I pray. And it gives me such confidence because when I'm done and I say amen, I know that I have prayed according to the will of God. I've asked God for something that he says he actually wants to do in my life. The guessing is gone. So look to Scripture for confidence in prayer. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. Well, one of the reasons we know that he hears us is because he tells us he hears us in his word, but we also know because of what Jesus, the Son of God, did for us on the cross of Calvary when he gave himself in our place for our sin and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and God just ripped open access into his throne room. And through Christ, we can confidently come to him and he hears us so the confidence that we may have for assurance of salvation and for approaching God's throne in prayer centers on Christ Jesus paid it all he really did we don't have to pay God And his death and resurrection has thrown open the door to God's throne room where we can go for mercy and grace in our time of need. We can be confident of these things. Not because the confidence is in ourselves, but the confidence is in our Savior who is sufficient 
and he is good, and he has done it all. So, Father, thank you for reminding us to look to Christ. And we look to Christ not by getting mystical, but we look to Christ by looking at his word that he's revealed. And so we're so thankful, Lord, that you wrote these things for us. You revealed them so that first we would know you, that we would come to believe in Jesus. And then having come to him in repentant faith and trusting him and receiving all of the riches in Christ through empty-handed faith, you now have also written to us other portions of Scripture that give us confidence that we know you and confidence that we may enter your throne room and call upon you in our time of need. Father, as we now turn our attention to the Lord's table and we think about Christ and his work in a more particular way and in a visual way, Lord, we pray that you will draw our hearts closer and closer to Christ in worship, the worship of this Savior and our great King. Minister to us, we pray. In Christ's name.